5. WNers from whom the trust received the building, Lady Kinloss, All Souls College, and the Ecclesiastical Commissioners, are the successors in title of three daughters of an Earl of Pembroke in the 13th century. It is fortunate that the old house has fallen into such good hands. The village has a Tudor Manor house which has been restored. Another courthouse, that at Udimore, in Sussex, near Rye, has, we believe, been saved by the trust. Though the owner has retained possession, it is a picturesque half-timbered building of two stories with modern wings projecting at right angles at each end. The older portion is all that remains of a larger house which appears to have been built in the 15th century. The manor belonged to the crown, and it is said that both Edward I and Edward III visited it. The building was in a very dilapidated condition, and the owner intended to destroy it and replace it with modern cottages. We hope that this scheme has now been abandoned, and that the old house is safe for many years to come. At the other end of the county of Oxfordshire remote from Tame is the beautiful little town of Burford, the gem of the Cotswolds. No wonder that my friend, Sylvanus Urban, otherwise Cannon Beeching, sings of its charm, oh fair is Moretton in the marsh and stow on the wide wold. Yet fairer far as Burford Town with its stone roofs grey and old, and whether the sky be hot and high, or rain fall thin and chill, the grey old town on the lonely down is where I would be still. O broad and smooth the Avon flows by Stratford's many piers, and Shakespeare lies by Avon's side these thrice a hundred years, but I would be where Windrush sweet laves Burford's lovely hill the grey old town on the lonely down is where I would be still. It is unlike any other place, this quaint old Burford. A right pleasing place when the sun is pouring its beams upon the fantastic creations of the builders of long ago. And when the moon is full there is no place in England which surpasses it in picturesqueness. It is very quiet and still now. But there was a time when Burford cloth, Burford wool, Burford stone, Burford malt, and Burford saddles were renowned throughout the land. Did not the townsfolk present two of its famous saddles to Dutch William when he came to Burford with the view of ingratiating himself into the affections of his subjects before an important general election? It has been the scene of battles, not far off is Battle Edge, where the fierce kings of Wessex and Mercia fought in 720 AD on Midsummer Eve, in commemoration of which the good folks of Burford used to carry a dragon up and down the streets, the great dragon of Wessex. Perhaps the origin of this procession dates back to early pagan days before the battle was fought, but tradition connects it with the fight. Memories cluster thickly around one as you walk up the old street. It was the first place in England to receive the privilege of a merchant guild. The gaunt Earl of Warwick, the kinmaker, owned the place, and appropriated to himself the credit of erecting the almshouses, though Henry Bird gave the money. You can still see the Earl's signature at the foot of the document relating to this foundation or Warwick the only signature known save one at Belvoir. You can see the ruined Burford Priory. It is not the conventual building wherein the monks lived in pre-Reformation days and served God in the grand old church that is Burford's chief glory. Edmund Harmon, the royal barber surgeon, received a grant of the Priory from Henry VIII for curing him from a severe illness. Then Sir Lawrence Tanfield, chief baron of the Exchequer owned it, who married a Burford lady, Elizabeth Cobbay. An aged correspondent tells me that in the days of her youth there was standing a house called Cobb Hall, evidently the former residence of Lady Tanfield's family. He built a grand Elizabethan mansion on the site of the old priory, and here was born Lucius Gary, Lord Falkland, who was slain in Newbury fight. That civil war brought stirring times to Burford. You had heard of the fame of the levellers, the discontented mutineers in Cromwell's army the followers of John Lilburn, 
who for a brief space threatened the existence of the parliamentary regime. Cromwell dealt with them with an iron hand. He caught and surprised them at Burford and imprisoned them in the church, wherein carved roughly on the font with a dagger you can see this touching memorial of one of these poor men, Anthony Acedialli Pri Center 1649. Three of the leaders were shot in the churchyard on the following morning in view of the other prisoners, who were placed on the leaden roof of the church, and you can still see the bullet holes in the old wall against which the unhappy men were placed. The following entries in the books of the church tell the sad story tersely, burials. 1649 Three soldiers shot to death in Burford Churchyard May 17th. Pity. To Daniel Monk for cleansing the church when the levelers were taken 3s. 4d. A walk through the streets of the old town is refreshing to an antiquary's eyes. The old stone buildings gray with age with tile roofs. The old tolls see much restored. The merchants killed mark over many of the ancient doorways. The noble church with its eight chapels and fine tombs. The plate of the old corporation. Now in the custody of its oldest surviving member Burford has ceased to be unincorporated Perto. Are all full of interest. Vandalism is not, however, quite lacking. Even in Burford, one of the few Gothic chimneys remaining, a gem with a crocketed and pinnacled canopy, was taken down some thirty years ago, while the priory is said to be in danger of being pulled down, though a later report speaks only of its restoration. In the coaching age the town was alive with traffic, and Burford races established by the Merry Monarch, brought it much gaiety, at the George Inn, now degraded from its old estate and cut up into tenements, Charles I stayed, it was an inn for more than a century before his time, and was only converted from that purpose during the early years of the 19th century, when the proprietor of the Bull Inn bought it up and closed its doors to the public with a view to improving the prosperity of his own house. The restoration of the picturesque almshouses founded by Henry Bird in the time of the Kinmaker, a difficult piece of work, was well carried out in the decadent days of the 20s, and happily they do not seem to have suffered much in the process. During our wanderings in the streets and lanes of rural England we must not fail to visit the county of Essex. It is one of the least picturesque of our counties, but it possesses much wealth of interesting antiquities in the timber houses at Colchester, Saffron Walden, the old town of Malden, the inns at Chigwell and Brentwood, and the halls of Layer Marnie and Horsham at Thaxted. Saffron Walden is one of those quaint agricultural towns whose local trade is a thing of the past. From the records which are left of it in the shape of prints and drawings, the town in the early part of the 19th century must have been a medieval wonder. It is useless now to rail against the crass ignorance and vandalism which has swept away so many irreplaceable specimens of bygone architecture only to fill their sites with brick boxes, likely indeed and all alike. Itineraries of the Georgian period when mentioning Saffron Walden describe the houses as being of mean appearance, which remark, taking into consideration the debased taste of the times, is significant. A perfect holocaust followed, which extending through that shocking time known as the Church Warden period has not yet spent itself in the present day. Municipal improvements threaten to go further still, and in these commercial days, when combined capital under such appellations as the Metropolitan Company Operative or the Universal Supply Stores endeavors to increase its display behind plate glass windows of immodest size, the life of old buildings seems painfully insecure. Excursions in Essex, published in 1819, states, the old Market Cross and Jail are taking down. The Market Cross has long been considered a nuisance. A good number of fine early barge boards still remain in Saffron Walden. 
and the timber houses which have been allowed to remain speak only too eloquently of the beauties which had vanished. One of these structures a large timber building or collection of buildings, for the dates of erection are various stands in Church Street, and was formerly the Sun Inn, a hostel of much importance in bygone times. This house of entertainment is said to have been in 1645 the quarters of the Parliamentary Generals Cromwell, Iron, and Scapon. In 1870, during the conversion of the Sun Inn into private residences, some glazed tiles were discovered bricked up in what had once been an open hearth. These tiles were collectively painted with a picture on each side of the hearth, and bore the inscription, W.E. 1730, while on one of them a bust of the Lord Protector was depicted, thus showing the tradition to have been honored during the Second George's time. Saffron Walden was the rendezvous of the Parliamentarian forces after the sacking of Leicester, having their encampment on Triplow Heath. A remarkable incident may be mentioned in connection with this fact. In 1826 a rustic, while ploughing some land to the south of the town, turned up with his share the brass seal of Leicester Hospital, which seal had doubtless formed part of the loot acquired by the rebel army. These tiles had now found a place in the excellent local museum, the Sun Inn, or House of the Giants, as it has sometimes been called, from the colossal figures which appear in the parting over its gateway is a building which evidently grew with the needs of the town, and a study of its architectural features is curiously instructive. The following extract from Pepys' diary is interesting as referring to Saffron Walden, 1659, February, 27th, up by four o'clock. Mr. Blayton and I took horse and straight to Saffron Walden, where at the White Hart we set up our horses and took the master to show us Audley and House, where the housekeeper showed us all the house in which the stateliness of the ceilings, chimney pieces, and form of the whole was exceedingly worth seeing. He took us into the cellar, where we drank most admirable drink, a health to the king. Here I played on my flagellate, there being an excellent echo. He showed us excellent pictures, too especially, those of the four evangelists and Henry the I.I.I. In our going my landlord carried us through a very old hospital or almshouse, where forty poor people were maintained, a very old foundation and over the chimney piece was an inscription in brass, Dorado pro anima tome bird, and see, they brought me a draught of their drink in a brown bowl, tipped with silver, which I drank off, and at the bottom was a picture of the virgin with the child in her arms done in silver, so we took leave, the inscription and the brown bowl, which is a mazer cup still remain, but the picturesque front of the hospital, built in the reign of Edward VI, disappeared during the awful improvements which took place during the fifties, a drawing of it survives in the local museum. Malden, the capital of the Blackwater district, is to the eye of an artist a town for twilight effects. The picturesque skyline of its long, straggling street is accentuated in the early morning or afterglow, when much undesirable detail of modern times below the tiled roofs is blurred and lost. In broad daylight the quaintness of its suburbs towards the river reeks of the salt flavor of W. W. Jacobs's stories. Formerly the town was rich with such massive timber buildings as still appear in the yard of the Blue Boar an ancient hostelry which was evidently modernized externally in Pickakian times. While exploring in the outhouses of this hostel Mr. Rowe lighted on a venerable posting coach of early 19th century origin among some other decaying vehicles, a curiosity even more rare nowadays than the Gothic king posts to be seen in the picturesque half-timbered billiard room. The country around Malden is dotted plentifully with evidences of past ages, Layer Marney, with its famous towers, Darcy Hall, noted for containing some of the finest linen paneling in England, Bealey Abbey, 
and other old world buildings. The sea serpent may still be seen at Abridge, on the Norman church door, one of the best of its kind, and exhibiting almost all its original ironwork, including the chimerical decorative clamp. The ancient house exhibited at the Franco-British exhibition at Shepherd's Bush was a typical example of an Elizabethan dwelling. It was brought from Ipswich, where it was doomed to make room for the extension of company operative stores, but so firmly was it built that, in spite of its age of 350 years, it defied for some time the attacks of the housebreakers. It was built in 1563, as the date carved on the solid lintel shows, but some parts of the structure may have been earlier. All the old joists and rafters had been securely mortised into each other and fixed with stout wooden pins. So securely were these pins fixed, that after many vain attempts to knock them out, they had all to be bored out with augers. The mortises and tenons were found to be as sound and clean as on the day when they were fitted by the 16th century carpenters. The foundations and the chimneys were built of brick. The house contained a large entrance hall, a kitchen, a splendidly carved staircase, a living room and two good bedrooms, on the upper floor, the whole house was a fine specimen of East Anglian half-timber work, the timbers that formed the framework were all straight, the diamond and curved patterns, familiar in western counties, signs of later construction, being altogether absent, one of the striking features of this, as of many other timber-framed houses, is the carved corner or angle post, it curves outwards as a support to the projecting first floor to the extent of nearly two feet, and the whole piece was hewn out of one massive oak log, the root, as was usual, having been placed upwards, and beautifully carved with gothic floriations, the full overhang of the gables is four feet six inches, in later examples this distance between the gables and the wall was considerably reduced, until at last the barge boards were flush with the wall, the joists of the first floor project from under a finely carved string course, and the end of each joist has a carved finial, all the inside walls were panelled with oak, and the fireplaces of the typical old English character, with seats for half a dozen people in the Inglenook. The principal room had a fine Tudor door, and the frieze and some of the panels were enriched with an inlay of holly. When the house was demolished many of the choicest fittings which were missing from their places were found carefully stored under the floorboards. Possibly a raid or a riot had alarmed the owners in some distant period, and they hid their nicest things and then were slain and no one knew of the secret hiding place. The rector of Gaughton calls attention to a curious old house which certainly ought to be preserved if it has not yet quite vanished. It is completely hidden from the public gaze, right away in the fields, to be reached only by footpath, or by strangely circuitous lane. In the parish of Ranton, there stands a little old half-timbered house, known as the Vicarage Farm. Only a very practised eye would suspect the treasures that it contains, entering through the original door. With quaint knocker intact, you are in the kitchen with a fine open fireplace, noble beam, and walls paneled with oak, but the principal treasure consists in what I have heard called the priest's room, I should venture to put the date of the house at about 1500 certainly pre-reformation, how did it come to be there, and what purpose did it serve, I have only been able to find one note which can throw any possible light on the matter, God says that a certain rose dunstone, brought land at Ranton to her husband John Doyley, and he goes on, this man had the consent of William, the prior of Ranton, to erect a chapel at Ranton, the little church at Ranton has stood there from the 13th century, as the architecture of the west end and southwest doorway plainly testified, the church and cell or whatever you may call it must clearly have been an offshoot from the priory, but the room, 
for this is what is principally worth seeing. The beam is richly molded, and so is the paneling throughout. It has a very well-carved course of paneling all round the top, and this is surmounted by an elaborate cornice. The stone mantelpiece is remarkably fine and of unusual character, but the most striking feature of the room is a square-headed arch recess, or niche, with pierced spandrels. What was its use? It is about the right height for a seat, and what may have been the seat is therein altered, or was it a niche containing a calvary, or some figure? I confess I know nothing. Is this a unique example? I cannot remember any other, but possibly there may be others, equally hidden away, comparison with which might unfold its secret, in this room, and in other parts of the house, much of the old ironwork of hinges and door fasteners remains, and is simply excellent, the old oak sliding shutters are still there, and two more fine stone mantelpieces, on one hearth the original encaustic tiles with patterns, chiefly a Maltese cross, and the oak sill surrounding them, are in situ. I confess I tremble for the safety of this priceless relic. The house is in a somewhat dilapidated condition, and I know that one attempt was made to buy the paneling and take it away. Surely such a monument of the past should be in some way guarded by the nation. The beauty of English cottage building, its directness, simplicity, variety, and above all its inevitable quality, the intimate way in which the buildings ally themselves with the soil and blend with the ever-varied and exquisite landscape. The delicate harmonies, almost musical in their nature, that grow from their gentle relationship with their surroundings, the modulation from man's handiwork to God's enveloping world that lies in the quiet gardening that binds one to the other without discord or dissonance all these things are wonderfully attractive to those who have eyes to see and hearts to understand. The English cottages have an importance in the story of the development of architecture far greater than that which concerns their mere beauty and picturesqueness. As we follow the history of Gothic art we find that for the most part the instinctive art in relation to church architecture came to an end in the first quarter of the 16th century, but the right impulse did not cease. House building went on, though there was no church building, and we admire greatly some of those grand mansions which were reared in the time of Elizabeth and the early Stuarts, but art was declining, a crumbling taste causing disintegration of the sense of real beauty and refinement of detail, a creeping paralysis set in later and the end came swiftly when the dark days of the 18th century blotted out even the memory of a great past, and yet during all this time the people, the poor and middle classes, the yeomen and farmers, were ever building, building, quietly and simply, and troubled by any thoughts of style, of Gothic art or Renaissance, hence the cottages and dwellings of the humblest type maintained in all their integrity the real principles that made medieval architecture great, frank, simple, and direct built for use and not for the establishment of architectural theories. They have transmitted their messages to the ages and have preserved their beauties for the admiration of mankind and as models for all time. Chapter The Old Castles Castles have played a prominent part in the making of England. Many towns owe their existence to the protecting guard of an old fortress. They grew up beneath its sheltering walls like children holding the gown of their good mother, though the castle often proved but a harsh and cruel stepmother and exacted heavy tribute in return for partial security from village and rapine. Thus Newcastle upon Tyne arose about the early fortress erected in 1080 by Robert Curthose to guard the passage of the river at the Ponzilii. The poor little Saxon village of Manchester was then its neighbor, but the castle occupying a fine strategic position soon attracted townsfolk, who built their houses neath its shadow. The town of Richmond owes its existence to the lordly castle which Elaine Rufus, a cousin of the Duke of Brittany, 
erected on land granted to him by the conqueror, and old Rhine tells how he came out of Brittany with his wife Tiffany, and his maid Manfres, and his dog Hardigris, he built his walls of stone, we must not imagine, however, that an early Norman castle was always a vast keep of stone, that came later, the Normans called their earliest strongholds moths, which consisted of a mound with stockades and a deep ditch and a bailey court also defended by a ditch and stockades, instead of the great stone keep of later days, four square to every wind that blew, there was a wooden tower for the shelter of the garrison, you can see in the Bayou Tapestry the followers of William the Conqueror in the act of erecting some such tower of defense, such structures were somewhat easily erected, and did not require a long period for their construction, hence they were very full for the holding of a conquered country, sometimes advantage was taken of the works that the Romans had left, the Normans made use of the old stone walls built by the earliest conquerors of Britain, thus we find at Pevensey a Norman fortress born within the ancient fortress reared by the Romans to protect that portion of the southern coast from the attacks of the northern pirates, Porchester Keep rose in the time of the first Henry at the northwest angle of the Roman fort, William I erected his castle at Colchester on the site of the Roman castrum, the old Roman wall of London was used by the conqueror for the eastern defense of his tower that he erected to keep and awe the citizens of the metropolis, and at Lincoln and Colchester the works of the first conquerors of Britain were eagerly utilized by him, one of the most important Roman castles in the country is Burg Castle, in North Suffolk, with its grand and noble walls, the late Mr. G. E. Fox thus described the ruins, according to the plan on the Ordnance Survey map. The walls enclose a quadrangular area roughly 640 feet long by 413 wide, the walls being 9 feet thick with a foundation 12 feet in width. The angles of the station are rounded. The eastern wall is strengthened by four solid bastions, one standing against each of the rounded angles, the other two intermediate, and the north and south sides have one each, neither of them being in the center of the side, but rather west of it. The quaggy ground between the camp and the stream would be an excellent defense against sudden attack. Bird Castle, according to the late Canon Raven, was the Roman station Garianonum of the Notitia Imperii. Its walls are built of flint rubble concrete, and there are lacing courses of tiles. There is no wall on the west, and Canon Raven used to contend that one existed there but has been destroyed. But this conjecture seems improbable. That side was probably defended by the sea which has considerably receded, two gates remain, the principal one being the east gate, commanded by towers a hundred feet high, while the north is a postern gate about five feet wide, the Romans had not left many traces behind them, some coins have been found, including a silver one of Gratian and some of Constantine, here Street Versus, an Irish missionary, is said to have settled with a colony of monks, having been favorably received by Sajbart, the ruler of the East Engels, in 633 A.D. Burg Castle is one of the finest specimens of a Roman fort which our earliest conquerors have left us, and ranks with Reculver, Richborough, and Pevensey, those strong fortresses which were erected nearly 2,000 years ago to guard the coasts against foreign foes. In early days, ere Norman and Saxon became a united people, the castle was the sign of the supremacy of the conquerors and the subjugation of the English. It kept watch and ward over tumultuous townsfolk and prevented any acts of rebellion and hostility to their new masters. Thus London's tower arose to keep the turbulent citizens in awe as well as to protect them from foreign foes. Thus at Norwich the castle dominated the town, and required for its erection the destruction of over a hundred houses, 
that Lincoln the Conqueror destroyed 166 houses in order to construct a strong mod at the southwest corner of the old Castrum in order to overawe the city. Sometimes castles were erected to protect the land from foreign foes. The fort at Colchester was intended to resist the Danes if ever their threatened invasion came, and Norwich Castle was erected quite as much to drive back the Scandinavian hosts as to keep in order the citizens. Newcastle and Carlisle were of strategic importance for driving back the Scots, and Lancaster Keep, traditionally said to have been reared by Roger de Poitou, but probably of later date, bore the brunt of many a marauding invasion, to check the incursions of the Welsh, who made frequent and powerful eruptions into Herefordshire. Many castles were erected in Shropshire and Herefordshire, forming a chain of fortresses which are more numerous than in any other part of England. They are of every shape and size from stately piles like Widmore and Goodrich, to the smallest fortified farm, like Eurasia Castle, a house half-mansion, half-fortress, even the church towers of Herefordshire, with their walls seven or eight feet thick, such as that at Uvia's Herald, look as if they were designed as strongholds in case of need. On the western and northern borders of England we find the largest number of fortresses, erected to restrain and keep back troublesome neighbors. The story of the English castles abounds in interest and romance. Most of them are ruins now, but fancy pictures them in the days of their splendor, the abodes of chivalry and knightly deeds, of fair ladies and brave men, and each one can tell its story of siege and battle cries, of strenuous attack and gallant defense, of prominent parts played in the drama of English history. To some of these we shall presently refer, but it would need a very large volume to record the whole story of our English fortresses. We have said that the earliest Norman castle was a mob fortified by a stockade, an earthwork protected with timber palings, that is the latest theory amongst antiquaries, but there are not a few who maintain that the Normans, who prove themselves such admirable builders of the stoutest of stone churches, would not long content themselves with such poor fortresses, there were stone castles before the Normans, besides the old Roman walls at Pevensey, Colchester, London, and Lincoln and there came from Normandy a monk named Dundolf in 1070 who was a mighty builder. He was consecrated Bishop of Rochester and began to build his cathedral with wondrous architectural skill. He is credited with devising a new style of military architecture, and found much favor with the conqueror, who at the time especially needed strong walls to guard himself and his hungry followers. He was ordered by the king to build the first beginnings of the Tower of London. He probably designed the keep at Colchester and the castle of his cathedral town, and set the fashion of building these great ramparts of stone which were so serviceable in the subjugation and overawing of the English. The fashion grew, much to the displeasure of the conquered, who deemed them homes of wrong and badges of bondage, hateful places filled with devils and evil men who robbed and spoiled them, and when they were ordered to set to a work on castle building their impotent wrath knew no bounds. It is difficult to ascertain how many were constructed during the Conqueror's reign. Domas Dai tells of 49, another authority, Mr. Pearson, mentions 99, and Mrs. Armitage after a careful examination of documents contends for 86, but there may have been many others. In Stephen's reign Castle spread like an evil sore over the land, his traitorous subjects broke their allegiance to their king and preyed upon the country. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records that every rich man built his castles and defended them against him, and they filled the land full of castles. They greatly oppressed the wretched people by making them work at these castles, and when the castles were finished they filled them with devils and evil men. Then they took those whom they suspected to have any goods, by night and by day, 
seizing both men and women, and they put them in prison for their gold and silver, and tortured them with pains unspeakable, for never were any martyrs tormented as these were, they hung some up by their feet and smoked them with foul smoke, some by their thumbs or by the head, and they hung burning things on their feet, they put a knotted string about their heads, and twisted it till it went into the brain, they put them into dungeons wherein were adders and snakes and toads, and thus wore them out, some they put into a cruciate house, that island into a chest that was short and narrow and not deep, and they put sharp stones in it, and crushed the man therein so that they broke all his limbs, there were hateful and grim things called sachantejas in many of the castles, and which two or three men had enough to do to carry, the sachantej was made thus, it was fastened to a beam, having a sharp iron to go round a man's throat and neck, so that he might not sit, nor lie, nor sleep, but that he must bear all the iron, many thousands they exhausted with hunger, I cannot, and I may not, tell of all the wounds and all the tortures that they inflicted upon the wretched men of this land, and the state of things lasted the nineteen years that Stephen was king, and ever grew worse and worse, they were continually levying an exaction from the towns, which they called Tensiri, and when the miserable inhabitants had no more to give, then plundered they and burnt all the towns, so that while mightest thou walk a whole day's journey nor ever shouldest thou find a man seated in a town or its land stilled, a payment to the superior lord for protection, more than a thousand of these abodes of infamy are, 